0: This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How often do you worry that your company, maybe you're the company founder or a senior executive, that your company may turn on you after you've been there for a long time and the board of directors or other management members decide that you're no longer a good fit. This could happen at any moment and leave you out in the cold. How do you prepare for this? And how do you plan to protect yourself so you don't suffer the consequences? To answer that question, Jotham Stein. Jotham, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on your show, Joel. Appreciate it. This has got to be every executive's nightmare: the idea of uh, they found a company, they stay with the company for a long time, whatever the situation, and then something happens, the wind changes directions, and they get pushed out for some reason. Uh, how often do you see this? And for, by the way, your lawyer, just just for disclosure, so that uh, everybody knows, how often in your practice do you see this happen? All the time, almost every day we get calls
1: very often from entrepreneurs, from executives uh, um, uh, saying I had no notice, I'm being forced out, or uh, they just told me with no notice on a Friday, I'm I'm being fired. And this happens all the time, which is why we have a lot of repeat clients at my firm. Uh, I, I, I practice in Silicon Valley. We also have offices in
0: Chicago and New York. That's because, wait, wait, wait a second. So, are you saying the same guys go from one company to the next and they keep getting fired at company after company? Is that I'm, is that saying,
1: the
0: I'm saying they get
1: they I'm saying they leave one company or another and they come to us for their employment agreements or what we call a professional prenuptial agreement um, to protect themselves so it never happens again. So, you asked me how many times people get uh, executives or entrepreneurs. Get forced out of their own companies, get fired with no notice, lose out on stock and stock options, profits, interests, whatever it is. It happens all the time. So once that, you know, it's the old old adage. um, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me our clients don't want to be fooled a second time. So they come to us repeatedly. Now, you know, this Silicon Valley, uh, certain areas of Chicago, New York, other areas, there's a lot of mobility between executives that might be at a place for six years, seven years, four years. If they're entrepreneurial, they'll they'll start one company and then they'll leave after four years uh, hopefully after an exit and start another one. That's what I mean by coming back to me. They were in Cincinnati.
0: We might not have so many repeat clients because there isn't as much mobility <laughs> there. So you'd so so most of these guys are smart. They they get burned once, but they don't get burned the second time because they do it right the second time? Um, they do it right by coming to us because that's what we do. You know, And that's what's in my book,
1: Negotiate uh, Like a CEO. It's how to protect yourself in employment um, or if you're an entrepreneur, how to protect yourself um, with respect to investors. Um, So you don't get put out on the street. Or if you do get put out on the street, you've got a soft landing. And and what are my protection? You know, the reason to call the book Negotiate Like a CEO is because what do the shrewdest CEOs do, male or female? They negotiate their exit, their separation agreement on day one, before they even start running the company. And so um, the book will tell tell you and, and, and what our practice does is explain to all the executives, entrepreneurs, how they enter into those agreements
0: um, to protect themselves if things go wrong down the road. So Which most of the people who uh, who listen to show me, we have a, a lot of CEOs. We also have uh, public companies and we have executives from these larger companies. Uh, does this apply to all the executives or is this a, really a CEO journey? All the executives and actually a lot
1: of people in mid-management at even lower levels. If you have any leverage at all, any leverage at all, you can negotiate Um, a protective we're calling a professional prenuptial agreement, a good offer letter or employment agreement. Now, if you're um, a C-suite officer or a mid-level manager, you're not going to get the same deal typically as the CEO, but you certainly can get um, and and we negotiate on behalf of our clients or have our clients negotiate where we shadow counsel all the time for executives that are lower level than the CEO. Now, having said that, There are certain companies out there or certain investors out there who won't sign an employment agreement with anybody other than other than the CEO and the CFO. There are some companies out there that do that. But when those kind of um, when those uh, uh, individuals or executives going into those companies come to us, um, we say, okay, you have to you have to balance the risk of going to this kind of company where they won't give you any protection vis-a-vis all the other choices out there. And maybe you want to check out another choice.
0: You know, uh, so these companies are uh, are typically venture back companies. Most of them are uh, are being funded in some way. So that's not entirely the same as the audience who listen to our show. But how how uh, readily do you notice these venture capital companies are to, to pay somebody off to get rid of them?
1: And that happens very frequently as well. So so what I described as the professional prenuptial agreement is on the front end. You've negotiated that protection or that deal before you go into become an employee. What you're describing is really what I call a back-end separation agreement. So the um, company will pay somebody to leave. This happens very frequently, but but often, frankly, it's for everybody's best interest. So we have many clients who come to us. And even one of the stories in the book um, of of the 59 vignettes I wrote to underscore what I wrote, it's the question the mythical lawyer asks of the executive is, why do you want to work there? You know, why do you want to work there? So in that kind of situation, it's often not always. And there's a way to do this the right way and the way to do it the wrong way. And you could look at the book for the right way. But essentially, um, the person being forced out, the executive being forced out, the executive who, who the boss doesn't want anymore, even if it's a CFO and the boss is the CEO, they come and ask for a separation agreement and they, they do it the right way. And often there's a, a sigh of relief from the boss uh, or or the, the team that doesn't want them in there anymore. And they rush to give them a separation agreement that gives them a soft landing, even if they haven't negotiated that in the beginning. So that that happens um all the time, um, day in and day out, um, across uh companies. Doesn't matter the size, doesn't matter whether venture back, public, small, whatever it is. Now, if your specifically question is about focusing on on paying people off because they don't want to have a lawsuit happen to cover up um sort of bad activity, if you will. That happens also all the time as well. Um, so I, wasn't, I wasn't
0: really referring to bad activities. I was really mostly just referring to just honoring the agreement and paying them out and get rid of them. You know, that happens all the time. I mean, well, if it's negotiated
1: up front, it's easy. Person, The firing happens and the the executive who's been fired has this protection that I just described. And they can literally stick out their hand and say, uh, pay me what you owe me. Invest me what you owe me in stock. Uh, give me what's in the contract. I think what you're doing is stupid. But you know what? This is America. It's an at will state. You can fire me. I'll go get a better job, and you'll pay me everything
0: that uh, it's in the contract. So that happens you know, all the time. You know, and anybody who's been through litigation knows how painful this is. So at the end of the contract, you have this uh, this prenuptial agreement, this professional prenuptial agreement that that you did five years earlier. And and the company says, you know what? We're not honoring this agreement. We're going to tear it up. And, and the executive has a choice, and that is to sue or to renegotiate or do something different. Uh, if he sues, it could take years. It could cost uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So what what really ends up happening? I mean, what are, are companies playing hardball, and they're they're really they're they're pulling that string? What what happens? most of the companies honor their
1: contracts, especially at the executive level. So what you're describing does happen. And we have represented in litigation executives exactly like you're describing, where the company says, no, I won't honor the contract. Or uh, what they really do is they hire themselves a big law firm and they try to figure out that the words mean something else other than what they clearly mean. And in that case, that when some executive walks into my office with that kind of problem or entrepreneur where the contract's clear, I I typically ask them what dysfunctional is going on here. Uh, But that does happen for purposes of renegotiation. And so you then counsel um, the client. Do you want to go forward and sue? Do you want to walk away from this or do you want to renegotiate? Um, when it's when it's written in a separate in an employment agreement you're right it could take a long time but there in many states the law is pro-employee when it's about wages and if it's about wages or commissions or in some states like California equity is considered wages if it's earned during employment there's a big step up when the contract is clear because the risk is shifted to the company so um, it depends on the context uh, the kind of advice you give but most of the time my
0: experience is, um, most of the time, uh, um, uh, companies honor their contracts. You know, it, it, but at the executive level, uh, the executive cannot go to some state board of employment, uh, you know, for assistance. I mean, they have to go through the court system and the court's not going to hear this for a long time. So they're not going to make a ruling on how soft it is. It, that's not the point. We're not going to dig into this too much. But but that does. It's got to happen a lot. I would imagine there are some dishonorable companies out there that are not nice about this. Certainly,
1: and sometimes it winds in litigation. More often, you'll find that uh, there's an there's an in, uh, uh, there's a in the employment agreement or offer letter there's an arbitration clause. So many companies actually prefer not to make it public and they go to arbitration. Yeah, but you're you're absolutely right. Uh, it is sometimes the case with any contract it could be between companies where a company breaches the contract for the purposes of renegotiating, and that does happen. But it is it is my, in my experience, at least with our clients. Maybe because we write gay contracts. I don't know. But but um, it's a it's, it's a small minority of, of the circumstances. that it happens. So,
0: so this uh, I mean, we're talking about executive, but this also applies to boards of directors, boards of advisors. You know, what kinds of advice do you give people who go on to boards of directors for companies about how they uh, how they attach themselves to the company?
1: So there's a couple of different kinds of advice. One is if they ask us about their fiduciary obligations, which we sometimes get calls about, particularly if there's something wrong at the board level. But when they're going into the company, I advise them essentially one is to make sure you do your due diligence to make sure you want to be a director of this company. And what and I ask them the devil's advocate type of questions. Why do you want to why do you want to be a board of director of this company? And then the other part is the contractual. So you can enter into a contract as a director, as you know, and here again, you can protect your interests because if you're if you're if you're being paid to be a director or receiving equity, meaning stock, whatever, restricted stock, you can enter into a contract with the company, um, a board agreement that says you'll be protected if
0: they suddenly get up and vote you out. So that uh, so the boards of directors are uh, are at will also. I mean they they're not uh, they're not long- term contracts. Uh, um, it depends on what state you are
1: in, and it depends on what as a director, whether you're representing common shares, who you're who you're representing. most of the time, uh, well, it depends. Certain states a director can be removed without cause anytime, by whoever has the voting authority. And in other states, you have to have only for cause removal, which makes it much harder. And in that case, if you have only for cause removal at the director level, which I might say you rarely have at the executive level, but if you have a for cause, uh, that a director will typically be there for whatever the term of the directorship is. And and to know that, you would have to look at
0: the bylaws. Yeah. Well, what's, uh, give us an example of a... uh, of a, of a board of directors story that uh, you deal with many boards of directors. I mean, I would imagine Silicon Valley, you must see this all the time. You know, what, what what's an egregious thing that you've seen happen at the board level?
1: Uh, you may not as an investor, you may not like this very much, but uh, in my view, sometimes uh, the uh, the in- investors are so focused, the board members who represent the the investors are so focused on their own investments and, and limited partnerships. You know who who fund who, whether they're private equity or venture capital. The limited partners they're so focused on that they they look out for their interests before they look out for the company's interests. And that happens not infrequently, which does lead to some, some often tension between the um, others on the board. And, and if they have management team members on the board, there can often be a conflict. So I have been in circumstances, you might find this hard to believe, but I've been in multiple circumstances over the years, probably because I got no hair on my head and I've been around a long time, but where in a tense situation, the representative, typically a lawyer for the investor directors would say, you're right, they have a fiduciary obligation to vote in favor of, let's just say, I'm making this up, an M&A transaction. Let's just make, i make it up something. But uh, whatever it is, they have a fiduciary obligation and they're gonna vote in favor of that transaction because you've raised all these issues jotham and i don't want to have a problem with you but you know what they're going to vote their shares against the transaction so if if management and the other members of the board don't get together with these investors you're going to have a a very unusual circumstance where uh because there's no obli- fiduciary obligation to vote your shares any way you want you can do whatever you want as you know there's a difference so that does happen uh, and so you've asked me what's the most egregious thing is and, and and that's what i that's what i see now there are lots of I have to say, I've seen other pretty bad uh, act, acting on various boards, uh, even publicly traded boards. Um, and and and, but I, I don't want to bring up the individual things. But you certainly see all sorts of things that happen.
0: Let me let me just for clarification, uh, so that everybody who understands who's listening understands. Uh, you're talking about a director could own some uh, limited shares. And they could also have some director shares as and they get to vote. There's two different things that are voting. So one is voted one way. One would be voted another way. You, no, that's what you, you're talking about. No, no. I, I uh,
1: and I confused you and I apologize. Let's say that there's a board of five board members and let's say three of the board members are are appointed by um, um, investor groups. So um, whether they're venture capital funds or whether they're private equity funds, let's just use that as a hypothetical. Now, the company I'm using as a hypothetical, um, something that's good for the company, could be entering at their contract, could be doing an MA transaction, let's just say, something like that. And, and they've had independent advice. The board has had independent advice that this is a good transaction to happen, all right, for the shareholders, for all the company shareholders, all right? So that's who you have to look out for at the board level. So they've been advised. They have all the advice that they should do the transaction. Now, for one reason or another the three board members of the five, they have a fiduciary obligation to act in the best interest of the shareholders. Uh, and, um, and so they, they vote in favor of the transaction as board members with their board hat on, okay? Because that's what their fiduciary obligation requires them to do. But then any transaction, if it's, if it's an M&A transaction or a, a financing of some sort, they may have the right in the documents um, to give their own approval as shareholders. All right. And they they have no fiduciary obligation with respect to the shares they own. They can vote those shares any way they want. So what I'm describing here is they then turn around and vote the shares that they own against the transaction uh, or whatever it is. And no, no,
0: that's exactly what I thought I heard you say. I just wanted to clarify that for everybody else that that, you know, that the director can have uh, two different kinds of votes and they can vote in different ways uh, for the same thing. To exactly. Just as management has two different hats on, right? They have the
1: hat on of the director, and they have the hat on of the of the of the management team. And they're, if they own shares, uh, in, the, in the you know they have the hat on of
0: their of their um, um, equity ownership. So, how, how good of a job when when companies are bringing on board members? How good of a job do they do uh, in your experience? in uh, in evaluating the conflicts because people probably have to predisclose their conflicts of interest in other words in their holdings their balance sheet what are the, what are they doing what are they investing in what are they what are they involved in what are their causes i, I don't know whatever their thing is uh, they, they must have some uh, process they go through is that is that process working
1: you know it's very context dependent there are companies particularly large companies that are very strong processes to make sure there's no conflicts there are other companies um and sometimes very large companies that have no process and 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 they wind up with all sorts of conflicts and tension so uh i can't answer that question except to say it's really context dependent depends yeah, on yeah. the company and depends on the experience of the of the
0: directors on a company as well yeah well listen it's probably um uh, smaller companies probably do a worse job than bigger companies fair enough not necessarily,
1: and, and, and <laughs> not necessarily. So uh, that would be that would that's not necessarily. I can't just okay. say not necessarily. It's All right, context dependent. I gotcha.
0: So, uh, how often uh, you know do you see uh, executives from one company asked to be board members of another company, maybe in a different industry? Otherwise, are are, are a lot of these senior executives getting opportunities on boards and other places? Absolutely. Um, in fact, most of the contracts we write for a, a
1: senior executive says in it, assuming the executive wants it to say this, says in it that um, uh, that they have the right to be on other non-competitive boards. You can't be an executive on a company and be on another company that's competitive, um, You know, CEO of one company and on the competitor company. That would be a breach of fiduciary duty unless you actually have the entire board agree, but nobody's going to do that. But the, most of the agreements typically nobody's going to do that. I should say, you never say never, but typically most of the executive employment agreements uh, contracts provide that the executive can be on a non-competitive board. The company then sometimes comes back and says with only with our approval. And so then there's a negotiation between the executive and the company about whether or not um, approval should, should be required. And if it's required, uh, you know, do they have sole authority or it should, not, or it should, what the fancy words are not be unreasonably withheld the approval process, but generally you will have executives and, and all the way, you know, at, at larger companies, well-known companies, often EVPs are just VPs acting on somebody else's board. That happens all the time.
0: Yeah. What about nonprofit boards? Are there typically restrictions uh, in the nonprofit world? Because a lot of us are involved in nonprofit activities. Yeah. Um,
1: you have to read the bylaws to know whether there are restrictions some some nonprofits for example restrict their directors to a geographic area to an interest area to whatever the area is so um, you'd have to look at the um, the um, the uh, uh, bylaws uh, to determine whether there's any legal restrictions then some states may have jurisdictional legal restrictions I can't speak to that except for the states that I uh work in and then and then are uh, that I'm licensed in and, and then um what you sometimes have at, at nonprofit boards is sometimes the boards become actually quite large and unwieldy um which is something you don't see as much in the private world um, and so you hold boards of 15 20 people um and and that can be problematic because it's hard to do good corporate governance there so it depends on the nonprofit the experience of the nonprofit it's just like any private company nonprofit boards could work really well and they can be dysfunctional on the other end of the spectrum as
0: well yeah so let's let's talk about so uh, so we, we kind of did kind of a survey of some of the issues that come up but what are some of the specifics that executives should be thinking about in this prenuptial agreement that they sign what are the things that they should be asking for what are what are the big buttons Uh Number one, uh,
1: protection of their compensation. So salary, they should ask for separation pay in advance. Um, That's what, you know, if they get fired, should they get a year's worth of salary? Should they get six months worth of salary? And then should they get uh, their bonus and commissions um, or expected bonus and commissions on separation? That's one area. The second area is to protect their equity. So what do I mean by that? Many executives are receiving stock Restricted stock, stock options, profits, interests that are vesting over time or vesting by a performance. And so if they get terminated, the executive gets terminated or entrepreneur gets terminated before that stock vests, they typically are going to lose whatever is unvested. And so the way they protect themselves is they put an acceleration clause in their professional prenuptial agreement that says, "If determine my employment for any reason um, other than cause, and you strictly define cause. Or if I terminate my employment for good reason, and you give a broader definition for that. Um, then you, the company, will accelerate the vesting of my shares uh, for a certain number uh, of years or, or time period or performance-based shares. Third, with respect to the shares, um, if they're getting stock options, they almost always would want, and this is what executives often miss over and over again, is a post-termination exercise period. So a period of time after they're terminated that's not the typical 30, 60, or 90 days but it's rather one year, two years, three years, four years that they have to exercise their options. So when they get fired, they don't have to just exercise right away, and um, that essentially turns a employee short term option into a leap uh, long term option. Uh, the third thing they would want, uh, the fourth thing they would want, or the third thing if if the post term and exercise period is part of number two, the third the third thing they would want is. Um, Uh, typically COBRA protection, that is the company pays for six months, one year, whatever it is of health, healthcare benefits going forward. And that's, that typically takes the form of the company agreeing to pay the premiums for Cobra for some period of time or advancing the cost of the Cobra payments. Those are the big picture issues now. In other places, other things are important. So for, or for individuals, certain individuals, they have very important things that I just didn't describe. I don't want to leave them out. So for example, car allowance might be very important in certain places. And so you would then want to negotiate for a year to drive your car, um, you know, on the company's dime, if you will. Another possibility is if there are loans out there. So many public companies that can't have these kinds of loans anymore, uh, thanks to the, uh, you know, some of Congress congressional acts. But if loans are out there, you don't want your loan called. If your company is giving you a loan, you don't want it called 30, 60 or 90 days after you've been fired. You want it called a year, two years, three years down the road. So if you have if you have that particular circumstance or other particular issues, you would want to negotiate your protection before you sign your employment agreement, because it's in your employment agreement and before you begin work.
0: Are the uh, are the kinds of benefits that these executives get that they're looking to protect uh how similar would that be for boards of directors
1: um it depends on whether they're being paid to be a board of director whether they're just getting equity so it would be you could enter into that kind of agreement as a board of director they're a less common um but you could also enter into an agreement um on that same level um before you become a director you know it's a board director agreement typically um they're not usually getting a salary they're getting paid for showing up or being paid for a board mem- board membership but um, so they'd be paid as like a 1099 typically, but, um, you can get protection any, anytime it's legal, you could write a contract to protect yourself. Um, and, and so I have to know more of the context, but they're not, um, you could certainly get that kind of, um, agreement if you wanted to.
0: This is very fascinating to me because it, uh, it's very sophisticated. And I imagine that more sophisticated people are doing these kinds of things, but I would also imagine that many, many less sophisticated executives are not getting these kind of protections. They're not going to go into an attorney in advance. They're not you know, being counseled to do this sort of thing. And I hope that that this show helps people because it's certainly uh, critical information. I, I want to say, um
1: you asked me what they would protect themselves, the executive would, what, what, what does that mean in an, in an offer letter employment agreement? There are other questions that you would have to ask depending on your circumstance. So, um, and, and you might want to protect yourself against it are critically important, but they're context dependent. So I'll use as one example. If you go into a, you're becoming an executive, whether it's a CEO, a CFO, a VP of worldwide sales, VP of marketing, whatever, or at a much lower level, even um, than that, a mid-level manager. If you're going into a company that has significant investment from private equity or from venture capital you need to know what liquidation preferences are right because if the liquidation preferences are too high then even a a big sale of the company won't result in any any money coming to you as a holder of common stock so that's one thing you would need to know another question you must ask If you're going into a company like that where you don't know, public companies is no problem. You can look at the internet and and find out what the capitalization is. If you don't know what the capitalization is, you got to ask that question as well. Now, if you show up and you're going in as an executive at a a company, use an example why this is context dependent. If you're going to become a CEO of a company um, that has high liquidation preferences... Well, then you have to negotiate into your contract protection that the protection for your equity includes protection um, um, against liquidation preferences, which would be something called a management carve out agreement
0: uh, or management carve out clause. And so let me, let me just uh, say that in case anyone doesn't know what that means, it means the liquidation preference means who gets paid first as, you, as you're kind of winding things down. And there's typically a uh, an order uh, of, of who gets paid when and what and how much they get. And the bottom line is the people at the bottom get paid little or nothing. That's just kind of how or they could get a lot if there's a lot left over. But there's usually not because people at the top tend to tend to take out uh, quite a bit. So uh, it's a tough it's a tough thing.
1: Yeah, it's not. And, and, and your use of winding down you mean winding down a company, but it could be very positive. So, for example, I just make it up. Let's just say liquidation preferences are two hundred fifty million dollars. And, and, and the company then sells for two hundred fifty million dollars. Okay, um, everyone that holds uh, stock or stock options, the company on the employee level, management level, any level uh, below the level of investor will get zero from that transaction because the first $250 million of this example- It's already spoken for. What's that? It's already spoken for. It's already spoken for. It's spoken, for. It's spoken by, for, for the investors who invested and they typically get a higher class of stock called preferred stock and 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 they don't have to sometimes they would have invested 250 million dollars in this example and and so they would just be getting their money back but in other examples they've only invested 50 million dollars if they and they have a that would be that would be sort of pig like but that would be a, a quintuple participating preferred stock and they would get all the money even though they'd only put 50 million in so you want to be very careful and ask those questions that's what i mean I gave the broad based answer for what an executive would want in their employment agreement, but everybody's situation is specific and you have to know what the, you have to know the questions to ask. So, so you learn how to protect yourself.
0: Yeah. If, if, you know, I'll I'll tell you, uh, if that question doesn't tell somebody that they need the help of a professional person, uh, there is no other example because, because that just isn't something that somebody walking down the street doing their regular business would, would think of, if you haven't been down the path and understand how preferences work, how liquidation works, how, how, you know, and and, and liquidation doesn't mean wind down and and close the business. It could be a sale. It could be a go public. I mean, it could be anything. I mean, it could be anything where money moves in a transaction. Right. So, uh, you know, if that, uh, if that doesn't tell you, I don't know who, I don't know what would. So I, 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 there's one of the
1: 59 stories in my book, negotiate like a CEO is just about that. And, and it's about, I have had the shrewdest clients, who don't understand liquidation preferences? as an example or what you really need to do, look at in a cap table so there's a story one of the 59 stories in the book is exactly an offers come in these are mythical characters and it's interesting the story the the banker says we have an offer the mythical banker says we have an offer for your company uh, for 200 million 250 million and they the, the ceo is screaming no across the zoom we're not doing this deal And his two executives are sitting in the room with him, senior executives, one of whom doesn't understand and didn't know anything about liquidation preferences, and is multiplying his equity ownership in the company by, let's say, 200 million. So he owned 5% of the company, he thinks he's going to get $10 million. And only after the fight happens and the mythical CEO tells, screams at the mythical banker and says, don't call me back unless you got me a better deal, does it does one of the executives who understands explains to a very senior C-suite level mythical exec- executive director, "You understand, you're not getting any money if we sell this company for 200 million, and you're not going to be able to buy that house and that boat that you're planning because you're getting nothing." And the and the mythical the mythical in this case EVP of worldwide sales says, "What do you mean? Why didn't anybody tell me about this?" And the, and 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 then they, he explains that's how you underscore the story the, 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 the senior, um, executive who does understand says, what do you mean? It's all in the documents. Didn't you look at the documents,
0: but you know, I can't tell you how many people. Well, it's, you know what, it's, uh, it's a complicated discussion that's uh, over the head of most people. And, uh, that's what they need a, uh, a competent counsel for, you know, listen, this is, uh, I love this discussion. This is, it's a little technical, but this is really, this is really helpful for a lot of people. And, you know, the, uh, the promise of our show is is the inside track, the best, smartest, and fastest way to get something done. And uh, you've definitely delivered on the uh, on the promise and kind of given us the inside track about how some of these transactions work, what to think about, where to go. And when people deliver on the promise, we call those people advantage players. And you certainly are an advantage player. And I I really appreciate you being on the show.
1: Well, thank you very much uh, for the compliment. I appreciate
0: and listen, it. Listen, we'll put uh, we'll put your contact information in there for any executives that might need you and we'll also uh put a reference to your book your your okay. new book that helps people negotiate these types of deals. So, thanks so much for uh, for being part of the show and uh contributing and and for being an advantage player.
1: Thank you very much for having me on your soul Joel. Joel, I appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer david wolf and the team at Audavita studios profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals to learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show reach out to www.autovita.com that's a-u-d-i-v-i-t-a.com produced by autovita studios connect your voice to the world